Yes, yeah, so firstly, you know, you used the, the Young Stalin book by Simon Sebag Montefiore. I did a lot of my research from um, Stalin, The Course of the Red Tsar by Simon Sebag Montefiore. So he's kind of done this, this set of books which track the life of uh, Stalin. I've, I've kind of picked up from Stalin's coming into power in the 1920s, so the end of the Leninist regime to the, like, to the end of Stalin's. So, like you, like you picked up earlier, Lenin didn't initially trust Stalin. So that, and that, that trust kind of went in ebbs and flows, really. Uh, Stalin and Lenin fell out in 1923. Um, the, and then he left in his will. He outlined that Stalin was not fit to be a leader and must be removed from his position. Uh, he kind of saw that as like, you know, he's, he didn't trust him. They'd just fallen out. There was this split in who was going to be the successor would it be Stalin would it be Trotsky um and Stalin was only really given his power by Lenin to curtail Trotsky's power because Trotsky was starting to be against uh some of Lenin Lenin's policies such as the new economic policy Ooh. so it was kind of there was a lot of maneuvering and positioning to try and like Lenin on Lenin's part to try and curtail the power of his his rival also to make sure that his successor was the right person. Yeah. So after, after after Lenin died, Stalin, with the position of general secretary, which is kind of the guy who's in charge of the party, who's in charge of who comes in and out and so on, uh, he was in the prime position to consolidate his own power. So he kind of, like, like most leaders do now, he kind of embarks on this massive PR campaign to build himself into the, the picture of the perfect successor. Mm. So he took over something called the Lenin Institution. So the Lenin Institution was where all Lenin's works were, his, his like ideological, ideological pieces and so on. And he took them all and worked them into a clear, coherent doctrine, of, like, which he had sole control over because he was in charge of this institution. So he turned it into this solid, clear, coherent doctrine which the Soviet Union was based upon. And he turned it into a set of, like, a series of lectures and a book called The Foundations of Leninism, which they kind of saw as the ideological backbone of the USSR at that point. But because he had done that, he was turning himself into the guardian of Leninism. Mm. So presenting himself as the actual, like, you know, the spiritual successor of Lenin. So this mass, and then at the next Politburo meeting, which is like the kind of the cabinet, he he took a massive, massive gamble, um, and he so he firstly presented himself as this good student, the savior of Leninism, but then he he offered his resignation. So you know he he read this testament by Lenin, and that that's got to be so embarrassing that this guy that you've looked up to for years has just said you're not fit to be in charge. <laughs> yeah. So he's he took this gamble and offered his resignation for the position. But then everyone else in the Politburo has kind of been like, well, you presented yourself as this perfect student of Leninism. You know, it's fine. Like, you don't need to resign. It's okay. You can stay on. Um, you know, Lenin, Lenin did... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> incredibly lucky. That one moment is such a defining feature. Um, so as soon as he's got that kind of... You don't need to... Look, you don't need to go, he clears out the Politburo, clears out the old guard, and brings in like a load of his own supporters. So you see Molotov and Kaganovich, these like these solid core group of supporters just flood into the Politburo to be there and support Stalin. And that's the backbone of his support there. And once he's dealt with the Politburo, once, once he's dealt with consolidating his power he's only got one main rival at that point which is Trotsky so he turns on Trotsky this is a guy who was Lenin's right hand man who you know did a lot of good stuff during the revolution well good stuff in terms of what they saw <laughs> um, so Stalin turns on him he starts denouncing him uh, for presenting himself as an equal to Lenin, uh, denounces him for his opposi uh, opposition to Lenin's new economic policy, um, 
and then accuses them of factionalism, which was, you know, you think now factionalism, that's not too bad. It's actually illegal at that point. Um, Yeah, so it's illegal to have no splits or to have splits in the party and so on. So Stalin accuses Trotsky and the Trotskyites of factionalism and expels them from the party and sends them into exile. So that's why we we see Trotsky trot across Europe, we see him in Mexico and so on. Trot across, I like that. I had to try that one, didn't I? (laughs) So, so yeah, Trotsky's removed from the Soviet Union in 1929. So it's it's a big deal. He's got got that one opposition, that one threat to his leadership, gone. And the, le- like, the legacy of Lenin is his solely to control. The legacy of the revolution is his solely to control. And that's, that's a really, really important thing for Stalin. Yeah. Um, but once Trotsky's gone, Stalin implements Trotskyite policies. Um, so it's a right stab in the back, really. So he gets rid of Trotsky. He turns, turns the uh, new economic policy over introduces Trotsky's proposed policy of collectivization and then he purges everyone else. So that Kaganovich and Molotov they're safe. Everyone that he put into the, the Politburo is safe. But the the old guard who supported Lenin, who let him stay in the Politburo on the idea that he was gonna protect Lenin's legacy, he purges them all. Has them all killed or sent into exile. He's not dead, does he ask Stalin? No, no, it's a, very, it's a very clever manoeuvre. So you see, like, big names like Berger Harin just gone. Trotsky gone. So all those old guard members who are a threat to him, they're done. And everyone in the Politburo owes their position to Stalin. <laughs> right. Uh, so he's fully consolidated at that point. So that's 1929 at that point. So, yeah, I think that's one of my favourite periods. Uh, but from 1929, it starts getting interesting. Um, he starts building his own cult of personality in 29. Um, so he's got the Lenin Institute. He's got the foundations of Leninism. So he positions himself alongside, not, not as the protégé, but next to Lenin ideologically. Mm. So he puts himself next to him on posters, um, which, is, which is important because not everyone can read at that point. And so you, if you see stuff... You see these quite yeah, a lot still, don't you? The, the posters yeah. of, of Lenin and Stalin sort of side by side. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal uh, at that point because there's so much preaching. That the order goes Marx, Lenin, Stalin. Yeah. And then suddenly you see all three of them on the same level. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important because you see this legacy starting to build, this idea that Stalin is ideologically important to the building of of the Soviet Union at that point. Yeah. Um so it's it's really it's really quite fun to watch that building of the the cult. Um, and he's 50 at this point as well so it's his 50th birthday year. So he knows he's not got long left. Um I mean he's got at this point if I can do my maths quickly he's got 20 odd years left. He's got 24 years. Mm-hmm. So he's, got, he's building that, ready for what happens. Yeah, and this is, this is pre-World War Two as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a, a lot happens in such a short mm. period of time. Um, so part of this cult of personality is that the newspapers and the broadcasters are obliged to praise him mm-hmm. in in whatever medium they put out. So they have to say how great he is, how much he does for the people and stuff. And he gains these, like, nicknames. So he's, like, Little Father, the Russian Santa Claus. Um, and they're kind of like, oh, he gives everything for us. Mm. So he didn't have that father figure for himself. So he builds himself up. He's kind of replicating Tsarism. Kind of builds himself up to be the father of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like, he always he was always like wanting over the top compliments. If you punished or if you published anything derogatory against Stalin, at, even at the height of the terror, um, you were punished. But 
even at the height of the most obscene Stalinist terror, people were still praising it. You know, your, your mother could have got shot in the street um, just outside your house and people were still praising him. Uh, people had no food in Ukraine, in a Stalinist man-made famine in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and they still had to praise him. I mean, so yeah, that's... I mean, Ukraine's still a big um, issue, isn't it, between Russia and... Yeah. And it's stuff still going on there. Um, mad. Absolutely mad. Yeah, there's, there was a poet whose name was Osip Mendelstam. Um, he wrote a poem where he called Stalin a peasant slayer, a man with fat fingers, and he, uh, he said his fingers were as oily as maggots. Um... <laughs> I mean, I don't know what Stalin's hands look like, uh, but yeah, he got he got killed. He just got killed. That would teach um, you for calling my hands oily. <laughs> I mean, he's he's not wrong about the peasant slayer part of it, <laughs> but yeah, that 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 kind of that kind of language got him killed. So it's you know you've got to be careful about what you're saying, but more yeah. importantly, who you're saying it to. Mm-hmm. The these poets didn't they didn't write their poems down because they were afraid of someone finding it so they remembered I mean, them am i right in saying that the the ussr was kind of the strongest under stalin yeah in terms of you know actual like grip of the regime yeah, over its and, people and might so it 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 baffles me how um again that we're taught that britain and america were very much the winners of world war 2 when actually, without the Soviets, it wouldn't have happened at all. I mean, America were busy, obviously, fighting in Japan, which was very much away from Europe. I know that they were there, but not in the grand scheme of it all that we're taught. Um, it was very much the Soviets that, um, uh, that sort of stormed into Germany and defeated the Nazis. Um, and again, that would have been under Stalin. Yeah, I mean, like, these conferences that, uh, you know, you have the Tehran conference, you have Yalta, you have Potsdam. Um, Stalin's the only one, the only one of the leaders who is at all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Churchill, uh, Roosevelt, you know, they've, they've gone by the last conference. Um, and they're never held in the US. They're never held anywhere that you can fly to because Stalin was afraid of flying. Or so we're told. Um, so you can really see the power, like, he's such a powerful figure, he's able to dictate what happens, mm. and these two powerful world leaders, he's able to tell them, no, no, you, you're coming to my place to deal with what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's that really famous picture of uh, all three of them, is it, uh, I know there's definitely one of, of Churchill and Stalin, is Roosevelt there as well? That yeah, fam- I think so, yeah. yeah. It's that really famous picture of... I definitely know that Churchill and Stalin have definitely been in the same room as each other. Um, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because after kind of all of this happens, the, the Soviets are then seen as the enemy, but, but whilst fighting the Nazis, they were not the enemy. They, no. were, they, were, they were friends, they were allies. Um which is interesting. Yeah. Which I'll, is what... hop back. To, mm, I'll hop back to nineteen thirty quickly. Yes, cause, do yes. Yeah, because <laughs> otherwise I'm going to miss out my personal favourite part of the Stalinist regime. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, you have the cult personality. You have five cities named after him, and so on. And it's quite, it's quite, it's quite cool. You know, mm. having like Stalin, Stalin, yeah. Stalino, stuff like that. Like they're quite, quite inventive, really. What is Stalingrad uh, now? Volgograd. Oh. There you go. On the western bank of the Volga River. Mm, I suppose that makes sense. Looks like a nice looking city. Mm. <laughs> Holiday destination for you, always. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to go to Russia. I just can't speak Russian, that's the problem. Yeah, but you go abroad to, like, Spain or whatever, you can't speak Spanish, it's the same thing. Yeah, just point at, uh, yeah. uh, silver play. That drink, please. Silver play, that's yeah. French, isn't it? 
Oh yeah, see, that's why I'm not getting what I want in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this this cult they it undergoes the rewriting of history as well. Um, you know, Stalin. I'm sure you read in the book. Stalin didn't have that big of um, a role in the revolution. Mm. He like he he did a few few minor skirmishes and so on, but he like the big key figures of it were Lenin and Trotsky. Yeah. Uh, and but, but Beria, Beria is one of his closest disciples. Uh, basically, rewrote the whole story of the revolution. Um, you know, he wrote. He called it's called on the history of the Bolshevik organizations in Transcorsia. Um, That's a mouthful, isn't it? I think it's got another name, but I didn't write it down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I of course went for the long one. Um, Stalin's role in the revolution. Was basically, he basically took the role of Trotsky because Trotsky's mm. basically been removed from history at this point. Um, and Stalin's become Lenin's closest disciple. He's the war commissar and everything. And everyone's reading it like, oh yes, Stalin had this role in the revolution. And anyone who wrote anything otherwise to counter to what Beria wrote was killed. Um, any person who they couldn't rewrite their role or remove them from were referred to as unpersons in the uh, in the footnotes um and they even went back you know they claimed they were like the marxists mm. they went back onto the work of marx and engels and any bit that criticized russian absolutism imperialism and called for polish independence took it was away. edited <laughs> yeah they took it away <laughs> It's like no, no, no. We don't, we don't, we don't this need that. This is what I mean against... about following like uh, an ideology or a party, like to the letter. There's going to be some things in there that you don't like. Exactly, and they they did the best thing about it, which is just just rewrite it. Which, if you destroy all the original works like they did, you can get away with it, really. Mm, yeah. um, unfortunately, Twitter, I think, archive all our tweets. So, <laughs> you can't change what you said. That's it. They're forever to haunt you. <laughs> but after this, we have the 1930s, which is the period of the Great Purges. Mm. So, you know, millions, millions of people died. Um, and it's a really sad note in Russian history, really. But it all kicked off when Stalin's you know, best mate, uh, Kirov was assassinated. So he was like a Politburo member, head of the Leningrad Communist Party, um, and he was shot inside the party building. Wow. Which there, there are questions as to who killed him. Um, Khrushchev later said that Stalin organised it as a, as a political weapon to begin the clearing out of the older, bold, older Bolsheviks. Mm. Um, but Stalin was so shocked that he was convinced that enemies of the party had organised it. Um, Kirov was a popular, well-liked figure in the party. He was, he was touted as the successor. Um, so Stalin began this purge um, and began to basically clear out all these older Bolsheviks who had a different memory of certain events to what had been written. Um, all, all these older Bolsheviks who had, who had the potential to be swapping over to younger members. Mm. So, yeah, there started to be this big purge, and it was led by uh, Ezov, and in some accounts it's called the Ezov China. Um, and the, basically the objectives of this terror was to remove potential disloyalty and non-conformity. Um, and then they did this like, other thing, which was preventative action which is they thought someone could be a possible criminal, so before they commit a crime, we'll kill them anyway. <laughs> which, yeah, which is like, it's like, it's like thinking I'm going to speed tomorrow, so they'll give me an unpointed licence today. So, See, that's where the, the, obviously the paranoia has kicked in there, hasn't it? I suppose the more, like with a lot of these regimes, and, and when you get older, or sorry, when they get more established, obviously you make more enemies... Like, so it's in their minds it was better to get rid of them before they did anything, like, 
prevention is better than cure and all that jazz. Exactly, but most of these most of these preventative murders were so there was there were several groups who they saw as these potential areas to purge. Mm. And this preventative group was everyone who was either affiliated them. So if you had a political affiliation that was unfavourable, you were purged. If you had contacts with people in foreign countries, purged. If you were from an undesirable ethnic group, purged. If you have a family tied to someone that's all... Yeah? I was going to say, I like the word purge. It's a, it's a, it rolls off the tongue. Mm, I quite like it. Purge. Sorry, I know that I went quite deep and audio booky, but um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you yeah if you had an f- unfavourable family tie, purged. So these preventative crimes was everyone who was linked to one of those groups. They thought that these people would be upset and bitter against the regime. Mm. So to stop them doing anything, we'll just kill them. Mad, isn't it? It's absolutely mad. Yeah. So you see whole families, whole families, murdered. Um, if your mate, if your if your best friend had expressed some kind of like they literally said that Stalin was a bit of a tosspot. If they said it one time, the police knew a that they said it. I've not heard that phrase in a while. We oh, need to bring I love that the word back. Tosspot. <laughs> oh, I need to. I haven't heard that since school, man. <laughs> I'm close to the school age, and I so I can. I know. Well, when you emailed me over your sorry, you messaged me over your second email address that said 1998. I was like, that better not be the year that he was born. It bloody, <laughs> it bloody was, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jesus Christ. Sorry. Go on. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you if you called Starnet Tosspot to your mate. They assumed that you'd told all the rest of your friends and all your family that Stalin was a tosspot, uh, and they'd kill everyone in connection with you, even mm. the baker, or something like that. So it was it was a tough time, man. It was it was it was tough for a, a lot of people. Mm. Um, so the, the the people in charge of this kind of purging was um, Ezov, like I said, and the the NKVD. So they were like the secret police. Um, so this secret police would kind of just like like we said in the Death of Stalin movie, uh, they'd knock on your door in the middle of the night, and you'd be gone in the morning. Like that, people would wake up and the neighbour wasn't there anymore. Mm. Uh, I think there was one block of flats in Moscow or Saint Petersburg. Can't remember, um, but across a five-year period, the the block of flats went from completely full to one singular family left in there. And this singular family had a link that kept them alive. Jesus. Yeah. That's so mad. it's it's it it, it must have been quite tough for people. Yeah. Where like literally five years later, and you're the only person living in a block of flats. It's just scary. Especially you're just waiting. Like, when's it my turn? Yeah. It's like but that was the one thing that drove conformity. That if you're you're so, so scared of you being next. You, you follow the rules. Yeah, and it, it was the same in um, uh, East Berlin. I'm obsessed with East Berlin. I need to just behave myself. But um, <laughs> I, talk, I talk about it to whoever will listen. But yeah, it was the same there with the stars and the secret police and stuff. Like, you were so terrified of, of being sort of hauled in that you would just conform. But even then, conformity isn't a guarantee. Mm. Um, some of some of these, so they, Stalin, Molotov, and different members of the Politburo, they used to get lists. So some lists would just be hundreds, thousands of names, and they'd sign it. Yep, yeah, let's go, let's check it now. Don't want him yet, kind of thing, and then signed. That's off. They're done. But sometimes it wouldn't be a list. It'd just be a sheet of paper with numbers for each region and they just got to kill that many people in that region that many people in that street signed so sometimes regardless of who you were regardless of how much conformity you were doing it didn't matter which is which which is scary because you you think you've done everything possible you're following every single rule 
yeah, and you, you still, still get outside. punished. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. But mm. they also led this. So sometimes there were political, political purging. Uh, there was this class of peasants in the countryside called the kulaks. So they were the richer peasants who held more land. Uh, they were the better farmers. They had the equipment, but they were seen as like enemies to communism. Mm. So. Stalin began this period of de-kulakization where they just purged these wealthier, uh, these wealthier peasants and then distributed the land among everyone else. But the problem with that is that these wealthier, more successful peasants were wealthier because they were better farmers. So you end up with this situation where these better farmers have gone, you've got the worst farmers and you're not producing enough food. So the Soviet Union went from a mass exporter of food to a mass importer of food Do you know because what? I of think I've, per- heard, I've heard that before. One of the biggest, like, uh, one of the biggest function, like, re- reasons, sorry, why the Soviet Union sort of collapsed eventually is because of like food and and stuff like that. It was just so poor that um, they couldn't keep it up anymore. It's, it's a country which should be able to sustain itself. Mm. Um, but because of their massive drive towards industrialisation and their five-year plans, certain things got left behind and just didn't work out well. And that's the reason why there was this mass, mass uh, famine in Ukraine part of the 1930s. Yeah. It's because these wealthier farmers were, were taken away and proper farming techniques were just thrown out the window. Yeah. And Ukraine faced a famine. Um. But also, you know, like I said, political opponents were killed. Uh, so Berkharin and Yukoda, they went on show trials. So they'd put them on a proper trial, or what looked like a proper trial. They'd have Western journalists there, so they'd follow the, the, follow the proper you know, way of procedures of doing things. Mm. But they just did it as this massive show, just to say, no, you're guilty, you're guilty of these things. They'd already tortured these guys beforehand to extract this false... Confession. Yeah, yeah. So and then they just killed him. Um, so it was it was a really like really bad time for mm. you to either be against communism or be against Stalin. Um, and then there was the mass deportation and purging of Soviet Poles and Jews. Um, so like t- so many people died in a variety of ways. You know, you went to the gulags. You were killed in the gulags through either overworking. Or starvation. So, for people who don't know what the gulags are, can you just explain? Yeah, yeah of course. Um, the gulags was the, the prison system in the Soviet Union. So, everyone's heard of the, the concentration camps for Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were basically similar work camps, but they were in the deepest, darkest, most remote places of the Soviet Union. Um, so... They were qu- they were really quite horrible places. They weren't mm. quite as mechanized, like quite as mechanized as the concentration camps, but they you you were shipped off to Siberia. Um, God, they love kind that, of not... don't they? Off to yeah. Siberia, you I mean, go. <laughs> it's cold. There's not a lot of food. Mm. All you've got left is to dress up as a woman, really, haven't you? So <laughs> yeah, an escape. I can imagine him on um, Ru- RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> Can you imagine Stalin on RuPaul's Drag Race? <laughs> Josephine uh, Stalin. Yeah, oh, I love it. Well, when he was a kid, he was called Soso by his mother. I left that bit out. I don't know why, but that's he could be Soso, Soso Stalin. Soso killer. <laughs> yes. But yeah, another another part of this terror as well that I I find quite interesting um, is that they ignored. The laws around killing. So if you're charged of the laws, you're basically above them. Um, so this secret police, they they used something called a troiki or a troika, which was a sentencing body where it had three members. Mm. So they brought you in. So say they, they so they picked you up out of your apartment. They dragged you into their local office, and they took you into a room. And in this room, there were three members uh, sitting on a table across from you. So one of them would be your representative or the representative from the party. Mm. Another one would be a representative from the secret police. And then 
Another one would be a representative from the state, so a state administrator. And these three, alone in the room, would find you guilty of whatever false crime you did, just straight away, in you're guilty. And then they'd literally pick you up, drag you into the next room, and shoot you. And that was that due process of law, where it was just like, we can't, we can't process thousands of people in a day. So we'll streamline it, and we'll drag three. We'll have three people sit in a room and just continually drag people in, and shoot them in the next room. Mental. And then it kind of wound down just before World War Two because he had like Stalin had to focus on other things. But <laughs> yeah, there was other stuff going yeah. on. <laughs> but yeah, that was that whole that whole period was just people dying, lists, and so on. Just people being found guilty and then shot. Isn't it funny that that um, not funny? That's not the right word. Funny as in <laughs> funny, funny as in uh, bizarre. But um, you've got these two huge superpowers kind of developing at the same time. Um, one is so they 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 both sort of start out as socialist groups. I mean, whether the Nazis were ever socialists is debatable. Um, uh, yeah, it is really quite because they both got similar kinds of roots. Mm. Even Hitler tried to try to try to do a revolution. Um, I wonder if um, Hitler and Stalin ever talked about joining forces because that would have been terrifying. Um, well, if they did. <laughs> Well, let me let me tell you. Oh, please do. Um, yeah, so at the beginning of World War Two, Stalin just didn't want any part of it. Mm. Um, you know, they'd state like the communists didn't really want to get involved in World War One, so they didn't. Um, so World War Two, there was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which mm. was a non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and. Soviet, uh, Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Okay. Um, where it was just, not, it was just, you know, I won't come and attack you if you just let me get on with my thing. And out of it, Stalin managed to go, well, if you can go and invade those areas, I will invade Eastern Poland, Finland, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia. And Ooh. it was just that agreement that these areas are mine, these areas are yours, let's just both get on with it. Yeah. But then, you know, we know that, like, as you told us, Stalin holds a grudge. Oh, he does, yes. Well, in Mein Kampf, Hitler um, made it quite clear that he didn't like the Russians. He saw them as an ideologically ideological enemy to Germany um, and as part of his Lebensraum living room policy for Germany, he saw that Germany would eventually hold Russia. Stalin had read Mein Kampf. Stalin knew what was going to happen. So this was just a strategic alliance so that he could take these lands without Britain and America wanting to get involved and stop it. That's interesting. So after, yeah, it was like he just kind of let him get on with it. Um, He didn't think much of Ribbentrop, but, you know, he, he did what he saw he needed to do. Communist expansion, but as we know, it didn't work out very well. No. <laughs> um, so Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa, which is after I think the Crusading Knight or Crusading King um, from Germany. Uh, it terminated the pact. He just tried to, you know, plow into Russia. But for all Stalin's smartness and everything. He didn't see it coming at all. Um, so he ended up having to fight the Eastern Front War with the Nazis. Um, but he he liked the idea that he would lead the entire war effort himself. So he kind of tried to perpetuate this role that he was the great general. I think he had the title Generalissimo afterwards as well. So yeah, that kind of all went to pot. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. 
but like, I don't think that I can't quite remember off the top of my head if I if they ever met, but there was an agreement to kind of get on with it, and yeah. you know, they're both they were both anti-Semitic for different reasons. Um, yeah. So, so there was kind of commonality for the two of them, um, but it was never going to work out because Stalin knew what kind of person Hitler was. Who do you reckon would have won in a face-to-face fight? <laughs> I I think Stalin. Yeah, he had more weight um, behind him, didn't he? Yeah, and like he was, he was, he had a better mustache, to be quite honest. Oh yeah, it was Battle of the Tash. That ta- that tash stronger... that Hitler was rocking was just terrible. Like, who told what? him that why? looked good? I don't know. Like, I don't know why you'd do it. I don't know. I mean, we've we've all we've all played around with the razor when we're shaving. Um, well, I did it the other day, but... and I'm, 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 <laughs> I I have no tash at the moment. I um. I look about you had a Stalin-esque one. I think you had a Stalin-esque. I've had many. I've had many a different style. Um, a tash, <laughs> a tash is something that I've been able to grow since I was fourteen. The rest of the beard, not so much. <laughs> it's like pubes on my face. Honestly, it's awful. <laughs> I just like maintaining my full beard, keep it nice and tidy. Mm. So I think I could be a dictator. I've got enough facial hair for it. Yes, you have. <laughs> you heard it here first. Ladies and gentlemen, don't shoot me. <laughs> I might, I might have lost that Yorkshire tea deal now. So, oh, did they ever get back to you? No, sadly not. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, after after World War Two, we see a very astute Stalin uh, become friends with the other side. So he's he's friends with Roosevelt and Churchill. Mm. Um, and he got on apparently. He apparently got on really, really quite well with Churchill and uh, and Roosevelt. Mm. He got on with them. He saw that they had commonality. They they enjoyed each other's company. Um, they all thought, you know, Stalin is a good man. Um, obviously, um, but all three of them. It was called the Grand Alliance, and they took part in the New World Order. But Stalin didn't like their successors. That was Truman and uh, Clement Attlee. He didn't like them. He, he And Truman and Stalin in particular just didn't get on. Mm. Um, so they kind of, he didn't adapt to these new people very well. Um, but out of these agreements, you see the division in, of Germany, which, you know, you have East Germany, East Berlin, um, and you have the establishment of communism in East Germany. You have Stalin with his Eastern European buffer and Poland, which um, Churchill called the Iron Curtain. Mm. Uh, And then you have, because he didn't like the new leaders, you have this isolation where the USSR felt, or Stalin felt that the UK and the USA were conspiring against him and Russia, which leads to the Cold War, which leads to the Truman Doctrine. So yeah, it's uh, after the World War you kind of see this this new side to Stalin, where he's been Uncle Joe to the Americas with Roosevelt, and it's suddenly turned on his head because he Stalin's, just doesn't get on with Truman. Yeah, Stalin's definitely one of these people that he, um, if if he takes a personal dislike to you, that's it. Like regardless of of of, of treaties or, or anything, and now. I'm not comparing Trump to Stalin. However, the way that that Trump would take a dislike to a person rather than a a, a country or uh, or or something along them lines, he he would take it incredibly personally rather than play the political game. It's very similar. That's my sort of only reference point. Yeah, I think it's... Like Stalin probably would have made a very very good businessman, um, but you know he he just took he took that kind of way that the UK and the US were acting at that point um, to a different level, and you have the Cold War, you have uh, the Korean the Korean War, the falling of China, 
um, to China. Oh, not falling of China to China, fall of China to the communists. And then you have the Berlin air blockade as well. Mm. Uh, and the Marshall Plan. So that kind of, you see that splintering. Yeah. Um, which, which doesn't really recover. Um, because it's so solidified at that point. Mm. Absolutely. And like... I think we, we, we forget that there, there are still communist countries around. Obviously, China is one of them. Um, Cuba is another one. Um, these places still exist. Yeah, and they're not, they're not tucked away either. Um, no, like you and I re- could go to, go to China. Maybe not yeah, now, I, I've been, but we could. <laughs> but I've, I've been doing, like, you know, part of my research this week has taken me into... Um, into what's happening with totalitarianism today. Um, and Masha Gessin, I'm not sure I'm pr- pronouncing their first name right, has written a book, The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Has Reclaimed Russia. And you see Putin and the way that he's acting. He's this strong man trying to impersonate Stalin. And you have the... Well, Putin was the, part of the um, secret police in Russia way back when in the 80s. Yeah. Exactly. So he's he's been there. Mm. He knows how terror works. He was a proponent of Soviet terror. So you know, and then you have um, you have Xi Jinping doing you know uns- like well, actually speakable terrors in China. I, you know, I'm going to talk about them because it's a it's a bad topic and it needs to raise awareness. Um, the Holocaust of Uyghur Muslims. In China. So, yeah, this is interesting. So this has only sort of come to my attention in recent weeks. Now, I think I had heard of it before, but, like, anything, like, it kind of got swept under the rug. But it's kind of all surfaced again now. So are Muslims being taken to concentration camps in China? Yes. So, um... Why is no one doing anything about this? So part of the the drive by China recently is there's an, they've got a new drive towards communist loyalty. Um, and part of communist uh, terror is that ethnic groups might display an additional loyalty that's counter to the regime. So and, of course, this, Muslim... Sorry, I was going to say, is yeah. this why... Um, so there's been a lot of trouble between Hong Kong and the Chinese government, because Hong Kong was obviously under British rule, rightly or wrongly, for a while it was so-called handed back to China uh, under the agreement that it would stay as a um, uh, a non-communist part of the country, but all of a sudden they're kind of flexing their muscles and it's it's going to be coming under their regime again. Yeah, same, same reason, or same idea, different reasons. Um, so the Muslims display different loyalties that not to the regime. So China's using the same kind of terminology that, you know, the previous regimes do where they're being re-educated. Hong Kong, I'm not so clear on. Uh, but it's, you know, that bringing together back into China and they have new security laws, um, which again feature of totalitarianism mm. uh, where they can where they can identify people through the, the cameras and arrest them um, and it's that taking away of identities which is occurring so you know there, there are still these regimes you have Lushenko in Belarus you have still the Kims in North, North Korea so it's, it's, it's something that's very much there mm. um, and it's not gone away it's just been normalised. And we can't afford to do anything about China. Therefore, nothing's being done. You know, you've got billions and billions of dollars of trade coming through China. China's a superpower as well. Again, like Russia well, is, was under the USSR. Um, it's, it's mad. I also wonder, I'm getting political now, but I also wonder if there's, because there's such an increase in Islamophobia, is um, is that the reason why people are not doing anything about it? Uh, it's 
it's probably because it. I'm, I'm gonna. It's probably because of China. To be honest, to be like, to be very quite blunt about it, mm. China has a veto on the world stage. They're a permanent member of the UN Security Council. So if anything goes against China in the UN, China can just go no, 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 no. You're not allowed to condemn us. Veto. Um, and there it is. You know that's kind of. You know you can't do anything about it at that point. Um, all that can be done and said about it is increase pressure on them to stop. But they'll there's, just deny it's happening. Well, there's definitely been um, strong words exchanged between, I know, Britain and uh, China recently. Haven't, um, like, six or seven diplomats from, from the UK been banned from going to China for uh, people in the in the cabinet at the moment are not allowed to go there because they said something against China and they've been banned from going which is crazy yeah it's that it, it that did happen um and it's part of the the exchange of political life really in it foreign relations is we'll ban your diplomat diplomats you you ban our diplomats it happened with Russia as well i mean this mm. this relationship that we've got with china has been characterized as a new cold war so it's it's a new period. You know, I can't remember which show it was, but same, same, but different, you know, so. Yeah, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it, what, um, what happened next? I mean, in, in this, this period of, of our lifetime, it's been relatively peaceful in Europe as a whole um, and relatively peaceful in the world, minus... Um, Obviously, the what's been going on in the in the Middle East, um, but it'd be really interesting to see what happens next. Because yeah. let's let's be honest, the the world is never going to be at peace because you've got too many normally white men, <laughs> like sort of flexing their muscles. Um, uh, the UK have just spent X amount on 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 uh, uh, Trident, and and we have a nuclear weapons program, um, as does America, um, as does well, Russia. The reason assuming, why, yeah, yeah, that was part of the reason why Russia, um, the USSR collapsed as well, is that the America or America saw that if they kept their neutral not nuclear missile spending increasing, mm. eventually, Russia couldn't afford it. Um, and they're spending so much money on defence that that money can't like there's no there's nothing for anything else. Mm. Um, but one way to look at what's going to happen in the future is to look, you know, what happened in the final days of Stalin and post Stalin as well. So you know we we've touched on the death of Stalin before, but mm. um, the stuff that happened there uh, really set the groundwork for what happened with the fall of the USSR. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's so interesting, and it's so complex as well, isn't it? Um, yeah. And it's, like, had Stalin not died at that point, or had certain events not happened, or... Yeah. I mean, I just... Yeah, it, it blows my mind. And, and from someone who yeah. has come from very humble beginnings to becoming almost godlike... And uh, I've spoken about this before, but he, Stalin is still very much loved by some people. Um, yeah, he was in Russia. He was recently he was recently voted the greatest Russian ever, and they had to fix the poll mm. to not have him the winner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's mad. I mean, the statues of him. I know a lot of them came down after the USSR, but a lot of them have gone back up. Um, uh, there's something about a statue. Oh, Everyone loves a statue, don't they? Not necessarily yeah, of well, him, um, but like of uh, anyone. Moscow heads the communist world in mourning the passing of Joseph Stalin. From a saluting base on Lenin's tomb, he reviewed each year on Red Army Day men of the Soviet armed forces. Army, Navy and Air Force, all have been fostered by Stalin himself. Until now, they have become one of the greatest military powers in the world. His people regarded as a god this man who was born the son of a shoemaker, 
For above all, he became a star to guide them to a more prosperous way of life. In return, they gave him their undying devotion and accepted his every word as law. But one thing Stalin did not give them, their freedom. And that, to countries outside the Iron Curtain, means all. Over the years, Soviet propaganda built up a picture of Stalin as a kindly man who loved his people. Yet, when Lenin died, it was he who destroyed those same people, it is believed nearly seven millions of them, to make his position secure as Russia's dictator. And through the 30 years of his rule, he remained unchallenged even by members of the Supreme Council, the Soviet's administrative machine. Of this body, Stalin was the chairman and held the reins so tightly that no decision could be taken without his approval. Thus, none could contest the power he held over 200 million Russian people. Then in the last war, Russia took arms against Nazi Germany and the Grand Alliance was formed. At Yalta, following the collapse of the enemy, the Big Three met, Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin, to plan for peace. But Stalin abused the privileges that victory won him and still world peace is threatened by his policy of communist domination. Russia herself has known fear in post-war days. Nine Jewish doctors were accused of murdering Zdanov, once believed to be Stalin's successor. Now Molotov, chief of secret police Beria, and Stalin's right-hand man Melenkov are among those tipped as Russia's new ruler. Melenkov, reports indicate, seems the most likely to follow in the steps of his master, probably by methods similar to those adopted by Stalin himself, who had all his rivals liquidated to establish his initial power. Anxiously, the world waits for the name of the new Soviet dictator. Whoever shall occupy the Kremlin follows a man of genius. Yet he was not wholly a great man, for he lacked humanity and the will for peace, the essentials for everlasting greatness. Yeah, well, like his, his body after his death was preserved next to Lenin's, and it, but it was removed in 61 by uh, Khrushchev. Um, but yeah, a couple of things that we missed in our Death of Stalin episode, because they weren't historically correct, um, was that he was planning, like we see it in the notes, he was planning another purge at his death. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so those notes that you see, and he's planning another one. So he planned to to purge Molotov, Mikoyan, um, from the the Politburo uh, to kill them. And he was going to move to kill these these older members, such as Kaganovich. So him dying at the point that he died at saved Beria, Molotov, Mikoyan, and possibly Khrushchev. Um, he just purged the doctors, like we said in the, the thing. He just purged doctors because he thought they were... Um, they were going to kill him, and that they were planning to remove him. Yeah, you get um, paranoid. I suppose the more yeah. with um, with great power becomes great responsibility, as they say, um, and the more enemies that you're going to make, I guess. When you, you, I mean, he you open yourself up. He got, he got so paranoid that he killed his bodyguard, and mm. he killed some very close people to him. And he started purging Beria's supporters because he think he thought he couldn't trust Beria um, anymore. Um, but luckily, because he didn't kill Khrushchev, we now have a lot of this information yeah. through Khrushchev's de-Stalinisation uh, mm. plans. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. Oh, no, to, to, where's Stalin now? Obviously dead. But like, where's his body? There's um, a grave. There's a graveyard. Um, it's it's by Red Square. There's a small graveyard, mm. and it's got all these crucial Soviet figures buried there. Um, and they took his body, obviously, out of display, um, and buried it in the ground, yeah. so that it was less of a less of a place of worship, less of a pilgrimage. Um, yeah, but obviously, his body is still his body's still go, preserved. Yeah. Which I find quite weird. There's a perfectly preserved Stalin in a coffin in the ground. Well, so. I, I, you, you say that. So I went to uh, Rome and uh, my friend, my Italian friends, um, took me to the Vatican. 
Um, yeah. And I went inside. Uh, I'm not a religious man, so I wasn't particularly fussed, but architecturally it's beautiful. Um, but you're going around the Vatican and there's there's popes just lying there from like X amounts of years ago and they just like they just look like they're asleep. But that's the actual huh. Pope that are like just lying there in, in for everyone to see in like this glass box. They've got kind of like a a, a, a waxy coating on them, but it's so Yeah. It's so bizarre. I think because over over here especially we don't have an open um open coffin, open casket kind no. of culture. Like to see that for me, I'm like, oh, <laughs> like we're very uh, uh, British people. We're very much like, no, no, close the door on that. We are yeah. done here. <laughs> Bury that. Get rid of that. Done. Like, da, da, da. Well, I think I remember bits of Lenin were starting to fall off, so they had to like close it, open it, stick it back on, glue it back together. And so yeah, <laughs> you know, a bit of skin on his nose coming off. We got to fix that kind of thing. And that do you know that takes us nicely back to the beginning of our Michael Jackson chat. <laughs> yeah, he's probably there. still preserved in there. <laughs> yeah, like he he was really, like he was such a good like to, in in all like to Svetlana, he was um, by some accounts a good a, a good father mm. um, to his son. Um, probably not. Uh, probably not a good man uh, to both of his wives. Probably no. But his mum, despite like y- your mum's going to tell you if you're being a knob, to be quite honest. Um, but she still she still maintained that he was a lovely little boy. Yeah. Yeah. This is like there's so many sides to people from different sides, and and yeah. He, he is that tyrannical dictator that killed lots of people, which is horrendous. But he also is a uh, a father, <laughs> a, yeah. uh, a husband, uh, a son, um, all that kind of stuff. So, and actually, someone that had quite bad trauma from being a child yeah. and, and a lot of people that, that, that grow up to become slightly unstable, should we say, had trauma in their lives when they were younger. So And you you can also see you can also see that he actually did what was necessary for the Soviet Union to become such an industrialised powerhouse. It mm. was not a superpower in nineteen twenty nine and yet in nineteen forty five it has emerged as one of the largest industrial powers and one of the biggest powers in the world. Yeah. He's got, like, they've gone from being re- really quite poor nation with serfdom, like slavery still around in 1900s, um, to, you know, a state with mass industrialization. I think it was something like 90% literacy rates. Um, so, yeah, it's like you, you, you can say that he did what was necessary for the Soviet Union to be where it is today. Well, you can oh, say not, no, no, so yeah. You can say many many things about him, but he um he was definitely an interesting character. <laughs> um and, yeah. a com- and a complex one for sure. Definitely. I've really enjoyed that Jackson. Thank you for bringing your knowledge to the table. That's um, all right. And I just want in typical history of Jackson fashion, I thought the recommendation of books. Oh, please for, do. Yes. Everyone would be be great. People have told me that they've been screenshotting them and, and putting them on Amazon wish list. So, yeah, we've you've used um, Young Stalin, yes. right by Simon Seabag, yeah. Montefiore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've used Stalin, The Court of the Red Czar, by the same person. Um, I've used Frank Decotter's How to Be a Dictator. I mean, that's that's a fantastic book, um, especially if you want to be a dictator and. <laughs> Uh, uh, one of my books that I've been using for my dissertation, the 1953 Conference on Totalitarianism at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in March 1953. So yeah, they're the three, they're the three books that I use. Title, in the book that you... it? No, it's a bit of a mouthful, and I hate writing it all out for my reference. But 
That's all right. <laughs> it is what it is. And because uh, we're on the History Emporium and Powers podcast, uh, feel free to plug any of your work. Yes, yeah, so um, you can find me on Instagram, at History with Jackson, where I kind of talk out my camera. Try, I try to do that every day, of just letting you guys know what I'm doing and so on. Um, and then I post my videos where I tell you guys about specific people and events in history. Uh, you can follow me on YouTube at History of Jackson. And then I'm also in the process of launching and creating my own podcast, which will interview professional historians about their specialisms. So I've got Dr. Andrew W.M. Smith coming on. I think I'm interviewing next Tuesday about French history. So I'm really looking forward to that. And thank you very much for having me again, Ollie. I really enjoy coming on your podcast. I look forward to doing it more. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, if you want the lowbrow history, come to me. If you want the highbrow stuff, <laughs> go to Jackson. That's kind of how we're going to play it, I think. 